This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to Saver Production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about turnips. Which is actually quite exciting. <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be as exciting as it was. It's it's eleven pages worth of exciting if our if our outline is any indication. And also you used a lot of exclamation points. In I did. This I did, and I tried to keep the the all caps to a minimum, but there's just so much going on with the turnip. There is. There is. The first thing I think of when I think of turnips is Tibetan turnip from Goblet of Fire and Harry Potter because I think that is the movie I've seen the most of any movie in my entire life. I have clearly seen it less than you have because I have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about and that's fun. Yeah, 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 you know. It's a made-up turnip. Uh, It's when Harry is very desperate for a solution to his second task problem and he says, if there's a Tibetan turnip... And Neville's like, I don't know about turnip, but you could always use guinea weed. That's, that's exactly how <laughs> oh, it goes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I do remember that part. See, uh, you just needed my spot on <laughs> reenactment. Yes. And it all comes it all comes, back. all comes back. Perfect. <laughs> I, I guess I think of eating turnips. I don't have that many turnip pop culture references. They're surprisingly a lot, and we're going to get into some of them. Uh, but the reason we actually chose this episode is not either of those things. It's um, because it's semi-timely. 
Right. Weird. Weird. Uh, it, it is the month of October as we are recording this. We're pretty excited about Halloween. Yes. All the time, but especially mm-hmm. now. We just get to share it with the universe with a little bit less, like, embarrassment. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, turnips were one of the original uh, jack-o'-lantern. Yes. Or perhaps the original jack-o'-lantern uh, vegetable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, we're going to talk about that because that is our favorite, I would say. Mm-hmm. My favorite holiday. My favorite time of year. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. And I do love eating turnips. I love them. My family is divided over <laughs> turnip greens and collard greens. And I say, why choose? Go for both. <laughs> both delicious. They are. I, I think that of the greens, I prefer mustard greens. Mm. They're like a little bit pepperier. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, same family, same, similar. True. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when people say greens, especially here in the South, it can be a mix of all of these things. Oh, yeah. 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 But okay, let's get to our question. Mm -hmm. Turnips. What are they? Well, turnips are a plant in the mustard or brassicaceae family, a botanical name, Brassica rapa campestris. Uh, They've got long, broad leaves that that pop up above the ground in a sort of crown, uh, coming up from what's called a storage root or tuberous root or hypocotyl um, that grows underground. The first year that you plant a turnip seed, it usually won't flower. It'll it'll grow those leaves and then concentrate on that tuberous root, which it'll spend the warm summer months bulking up with lots of moisture and sugars and other nutrients. And that's because, left to its own devices, the turnip plant would use those resources to to bunker down for and, and survive through the cold winter and then send up stems of flowers to produce seeds in the spring. Those tuberous roots are usually spherical, maybe a little squished spherical looking, um, and have a white or greenish skin with a a circle of deep purple up at their crown where where the leaves grow from, but they can be all kind of white. Anyway, um, their flesh is white to yellowish, and they're usually about the size of a baseball, like around like four inches or ten centimeters across. Both those tubers and the leaves are edible, um, and the flavor of both have these, like, bitter and and spicy or pungent notes that they probably evolved in an attempt to detract animals from eating them and even to detract microorganisms from infecting them. But suckas, humans like the weird stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah, the tubers have a little bit of a sweetness to them, too, and uh, sort of like a medium starchiness, I'd say, like less starch than a potato, maybe like more than a carrot. Mm. You can make, like, a really good mash of turnips. Yes, you can. Lovely. Um, yes. Uh, the leaves are more tender than kale, but but hold up well to being cooked. I feel like this is one of the few things we've talked about where people, I feel like a lot of times we didn't realize you can eat the leaves. But this one, <laughs> yes. Turnips and turnip greens are cooked and used in all kinds of ways all over the world. I usually eat the greens stewed with the root, which okay. is popular in the southern U.S. My mom used to add sweet and low. And as a kid, I thought that was very bizarre. Huh. But that's why the some of my family, they don't like turnips because they think they're too bitter. And I think the sweet and low was supposed to sure, counteract. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Ham hock is also usually used here well, in the South. If it's, you can just, not only in turnips, yes. ham hock is usually used. <laughs> yes, that's fair. Period. That is fair. Um, or the root uh, roasted, I like that, even as a kind of a French fry-esque sort oh, of sure. thing. Yeah. Um, in some parts of Asia, turnips soaked in brine and pickled are a popular snack. Uh, and the Middle East, uh, yeah. In some places, they're as common as a pickle as a cucumber. And then right before I came in here, I didn't get to research this, so any listeners who know about it, please write in. But that mash, kind of a mash of turnips I read, is very popular on burn day. 
Okay. Yeah. So if that's true, please write in. Yeah, let us know. Um, and yes, greens, which can encompass turnips and or collards, um, are a part of the traditional Southern New Year's meal, symbolic of the the money. The green, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I've even made a combo of turnips, black-eyed peas, and ham <laughs> egg rolls for D&D. <laughs> I don't know if you remember those. I was very I do. Proud. They were delicious. <laughs> they were good. I was really, I was, I was really impressed. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the combo of all the foods from this traditional Southern New Year's meal. And you can see our New Year's traditions episode for more on that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Turnips are related to a few things that we've talked about before, um, uh, like arugula and cauliflower. And they actually share that B. rapa species with stuff like a rapini and bok choy and napa cabbage. And like many of those plants, um, part of what gives turnips their kick is this group of sulfurous compounds called uh, glucosinolates that are pretty cool, biologically speaking. Um, they're, they're a sort of chemical defense mechanism. They, they don't do anything in particular while they're locked up inside of a plant's cells. But if something breaks those cell walls, like, a, like an animal taking a chomp out of them or a pathogen spreading an internal infection, those glucosinolates spill out and, uh, and will interact with an enzyme that will then break them down into these other compounds that taste all bitter and sharp. And, um, yeah, that can that can detract an animal, can go, or, um, or just really mess microbes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can even mess with stuff like cancer cells, preventing those cells from dividing and even encouraging cell death, which, yeah, is one of the reasons why turnips are considered to be pretty good for you. Which brings us to... Yes. Nutrition. Ah. ah. Yeah, turnips and their greens are both... Pretty good for you. Lots of vitamins and minerals, um, especially vitamin C in the root and vitamin A in the greens. Pretty low in sugars and fats and thus low in calories, but with a relatively sharp punch of flavor for that low caloric buy-in. Um, also a lot of fiber. So, yeah, they'll, they'll fill you up pretty well, though it's best to pair them with uh, proteins and fats to help keep you going. Easy. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, they've got a bunch of antioxidants, which under certain circumstances can help your body prevent stuff like cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, and cancers, and some antimicrobials, too. Extracts of turnips are being investigated for so many things. Um, uh, Treatments ranging from uh, liver, kidney, and cardiovascular diseases to cancers to diabetes to bacterial and fungal infections to relief of pain and inflammation. Note that just eating turnips is not a cure for anything aside from hunger. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, they're nutritious, but, like, you're not going to eat enough of them to, like, cure cancer. And that is not a challenge. Go to a doctor for that noise. Yes. Yes. We are not a medical podcast. Oh, my gosh, we're not. No, no, no. <laughs> um, um, turnips are also being investigated as a way to supplement selenium in the diets of people who may be selenium deficient, which is bad times. Um yeah, it's apparently, uh, turnips apparently are a particularly good absorber of uh, selenium supplements that can be added to, like, growing conditions, soil or water or whatever. I, every time I hear that word, I think of evolution <laughs> every time. <laughs> uh, um, numbers. Hard to come by. Hard to come by numbers. I can tell you that in 2018, Canada produced 42,440 metric tons of fresh rutabagas and turnips. Mm-hmm. Combined category happens yes. a lot. Uh-huh. Apparently, most of the turnips grown for human consumption in the U.S. come from the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, file under festivals we need to attend the Eastham Turnip Festival in Massachusetts. There's a cook-off, 
a shuck-off, a turnip weight-guessing contest. I'm really good at those. <laughs> turnip hole, turnip bowling, and, of course, food. Uh, yes. It's coming up on November 23rd, 2019. If anyone's in the area, you want to oh, go. Yeah, let us all oh, take Please pictures. Let, us know. let oh. us know how it is. This is important. Is there a beauty pageant? Yes. Oh. Is there a trophy? Is there a crown? Is there a scepter? Is there a turnip scepter? If there is, I'm going to have to go. <laughs> I'm going to have to go. <laughs> oh, okay. I also found this. Lou Johnson wrote a piece over at Minitab that involved a lot of graphs and statistics around turnips called How Statistics Got to the Root of My Turnip Problem. (laughs) So basically, he had a ton of turnips and wanted to find the best tasting way to turn them into soup quickly. So he made a bunch. Specifically and quickly specifically. Yes. Okay, I like this. Mm -hmm. And he had a bunch of taste testers, all these different things. Um, His tips were... Start with good quality turnips. Okay, sure. Boil them in salt water and add potato and cream, but be wary of nutmeg. No nutmeg? To taste. Oh, okay. To your taste. So so not so don't over nutmeg is his advice. (laughs) Wise. (laughs) Wise. Yes. Um there are a couple records. For largest turnips, um, the Guinness record for heaviest was given after the 2004 Alaska State Fair in which um, Scott and Marty Robb presented a 17.7 kilo turnip. That's uh, 39 pounds, 3 ounces. Wow. Um, There was also an entry from Australia last year that weighed 18.3 kilos, but for whatever reason, it has not been accepted by Guinness yet. I don't. I, I don't know about about the status of this. I haven't like followed up with anyone journalistically. Turnip politics. <laughs> um, the longest turnip on record, meanwhile, seems to have been named just this September of 2019. Um, it was a turnip out of the UK that measured uh, 4.064 meters, which is 13 feet. What? I, I think it includes the like not only the um the the storage route but also like the tap route. Oh. So like and, and it looks real gnarly, y'all. Like it looked like this like weird like Lovecraftian heart. And I was just like, this is this is a whole thing. Oh man. Anyway, look look that look that noise up. It's terrific. I will. Can you imagine like if I was growing something, I thought this might be the biggest in the world, and it, I would feel like such a pet. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Getting bigger today. They, yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the farmers who who grew it, the, the the family of farmers who grew it, were, were like, it took a lot of work to make sure that that root didn't break. We just we realized at a certain point that we have to be careful with this. You might have an emotional connection. Yeah, I think I would. Oh gosh, I have a very big emotional connection to this next thing. Oh yeah, I'm so glad I found it. <laughs> <laughs> right before we came in, the turnip prize. Turnip prize. Yes. Okay. It is a bad pun-based art contest. Well, okay, bad pun-based. Yes. Art contest. Yes. Annie, I don't think, and it's called the turnip prize. I don't think I've ever ever heard of anything that is more you. I know. <laughs> it's like they made this just for Annie Reese. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they still do it. Um. Okay, so it's a parody of the Tate Gallery's Turner Prize, which is one of the UK's biggest art awards. Mm -hmm. And this parody contest got started in 1999. The trophy is a turnip nailed to some wood. (laughs) 
Oh, you can get disqualified for, quote, trying too hard. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. The contest awards <laughs> the artist who has, quote, created something that they perceive to be crap art using the least amount of effort possible. <laughs> the contest inventor once said, it never ceases to amaze me. You'd think that all the puns and everything had been done. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and, yeah, it still goes on. 2019's winning piece was called Collie Wobbles. It was a little toy collie figurine on top of what appears to be a gelatin mold. That is amazing. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yep. The creator said of this piece, it will be remembered in art history for no time at all, and that he was delighted with the lack of effort to create this work. <laughs> and then I, I had to include this picture. It's just hay with a roll in it. With, with like a bread roll on it. <laughs> The the pun being a roll in the hay. Yeah. Oh. It's real. It's real real. There's a book about it now. Um, they get like 90 entries a year. Oh, gosh. 20 years. You know, good for good for them. Yeah. And good for Collie Wobbles. That's delightful. It really is. My heart is warm. <laughs> I want to compete, but I think I'd get disqualified for trying too hard. Uh, it's got to be like it just comes to you and you... And you just kind of... Just, and and then, they're also very clear they're just going to throw it away. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, well, inspired by this, we can we can probably work, work up something really good. If you guys... Oh, my gosh. If you guys want to enter or if you have any, like, personal... Just if you don't want to go to the bother of, of official entry, but just yeah. want to send us your entries. Yes. Please do. Please do. Oh, so much joy would be brought that day. Um, <laughs> we we meanwhile we've got some history we do from prior days to yes. talk about. Um, but first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. A new season of Bridgerton is here, and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season. We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About $6 million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, turnips have a long history. Oh, yeah. They're like one of the earliest domesticated... Yes. Vegetables. Mm-hmm. They most likely originated somewhere in Eurasia over 4,000 years ago. Prehistoric humans in what is now kind of Europe area. Europe-ish. Yeah. Ate turnips. They appreciated its hardiness and ease of growing. Mm-hmm. And in part because of those things, turnips spread throughout the Mediterranean and Asia. I will say, if you look up, like, when did the turnip come up, you... We'll find an answer that it was the 15th century, which I personally, from my research, disagree with. But <laughs> part part of it is historians say it's difficult to really track the turnip because of what what word did they use that I thought was so funny, like the intricacies of language, linguistics, or something. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, because of, as we said earlier, a bunch of related yes. vegetables have been called by very similar or the same name sometimes yes. by different um, different historians throughout time. So yeah. Mysteries of history. Yep, yep. We're doing what we can. (laughs) But. But. 
throughout much of this history, humans have not looked upon the turnip uh, favorably. Yes. Yes. No. It's been historically seen as a food only proper for livestock and the very desperate poor. Mm -hmm. In fact, ancient Romans threw turnips instead of tomatoes at public figures who drew their ire. Ow. Right? (laughs) Like a tomato has a little bit of give. Still would hurt. (laughs) But it's more like a water balloon than a turnip for sure. Right. Ooh. Water balloons hurt too. Anyway, that's, that's true. outside of the top. <laughs> it's a different different thing at hand. Uh, the ancient Greeks wrote about turnips as well. Our pal Pliny wrote about different varieties of turnips, calling them rapa and napis. In Middle English, this word became neep. Nep, uh, and N-E-P-E, it, yeah. Yes, which is still used in some in some places. Mm-hmm. And in Anglo-Saxon, nip, one of these words combined with turn, meaning made round, came together to form turnip. Ah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turnip eater, going back to that whole unfavorable thing, was a common insult used against country folks in the 15th century. Charles Dickens similarly enjoyed using turnip. He enjoyed turnip. He, pro- he probably didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we did, Alyssa Didson does that book once, Charles Dickens' oh. cookbook. I'll oh. look in and see if there's okay. any turnips. All right. Um, oh. but, no, he employed the word turnip in his novels as an insult, usually meaning idiot. Yeah. Yeah. People did eat them, though. Uh, during the 1500s, the roots were eaten, baked, or boiled while the tops were cooked as greens. Mm-hmm. Jacques Cartier frequently gets the credit for introducing the turnip to North America when he planted turnips in Canada in 1541. Colonists planted the crop in Virginia, at least by 1609, Mm -hmm. and records show that they were in Massachusetts by the 1620s. Colonists and Native Americans picked it up, but they weren't too widely grown in uh, this country until the 18th century. They were, however, likely present at whatever version of the first Thanksgiving you want to cite, whether that's in the early 1600s or after President Lincoln made the holiday official in 1863. And you can see our Thanksgiving episode for more on that. You can. Mm -hmm. The southern U.S. adopted turnips, too, as they grew well in the region. Mm -hmm. Slave owners grew turnips because they were cheap, keeping the turnip roots for themselves and giving the leaves to their slaves. Usually, since many of the enslaved peoples were from West Africa, where greens were frequently incorporated into the cuisine, they adopted the turnip leaves as a substitute. Perhaps in part because of this, and in part because they were in R so readily grown in the South, turnip greens went on to become a part of Southern African-American cuisine. But, as we said in our Boiled Peanuts episode, mm-hmm. foodstuffs popular in the South are often misattributed to simply the Civil War, and or slavery. Yeah, like the only reason people ate them was because of these poverty situations. Exactly. And that might be part of the story, but that's not the whole story. Greens, um, a term that, again, can encompass a bunch of different things, including turnips, is something we'll have to return to in a future episode. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The turnip did have a bit of a moment, a bit, in the 18th (laughs) century in England when statesman and diplomat Charles Townshend experimented with Turnips. He came up with and promoted a four-field crop rotation system with wheat, barley, clover, and turnips. Or maybe he didn't come up with it because some records from the time indicate other farmers had a similar system in Mm -hmm. place. But he definitely popularized it. This led to wide-scale adoption of the turnip as a crop in that country and also led to his nickname, 
of Turnip Townshend. <laughs> Poet Alexandra Pope said, turnips were all Townshend ever wanted to talk about. I feel like a kinship. Right? <laughs> we're, we're connecting somehow <laughs> right now. The turnip, which could withstand the harsh winters in storage, contributed to a boom of food. Using turnips to feed livestock in the winter allowed farmers the option of not slaughtering their animals as winter approached, thus increasing their supply of byproducts like milk. This was part of a wave of agricultural advancements that helped set the stage for the Industrial Revolution. With the food provided by more efficient farms, the population grew, which meant more workers for factories. Turn up or turn ups, indeed. <laughs> hmm When the Irish were struggling uh, during the potato famine, David F. Jones published Turnip Husbandry in 1847. Love it. Promoting the turnip as a replacement for the potato. Asnett Nicholson's 1851 work, Annals of the Famine in Ireland, contained several passages on turnips, including this one. When it was found that turnips could be so easily grown, they were hailed with great joy— but the starving ones soon found them unsatisfactory, for when they had eaten much more in bulk than of the potato, they were still craving, and the result was, where for weeks they lived wholly on them, their stomachs were so swollen, especially the children's, that it was a pitiable sight to see them. No one thought it was the turnip, but I found on every place on the coast where they were fed on them the same results. As far as I could ascertain, such died in a few weeks, and a rational conclusion must be that a single root, so innutritious and so watery as the white turnips are cannot sustain a healthy state of the system, nor life itself for any considerable time. The appearance of these turnip eaters became quite a dread. Yeah, definitely not as whole of a, of a food as others. Yep, that'll be an episode for another day as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Ireland is also probably where the jack-o'-lantern tradition came from, as far back as the 1500s. Some Irish folks, possibly Celtic pagans, believed that the turnip could ward away evil spirits, devils, and demons. So they would hollow out the turnip, place a little ember inside. Uh, sometimes they would use a large potato or perhaps a beet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the the legend behind the jack-o'-lantern, several stories have to do with Stingy Jack, mm-hmm. who is a character that we talked about in our pumpkin episode. Yes, um, and we put together a, uh, a, little, a little telling of the tale in that episode, and and we we figured we'd go ahead and, and share it with you with y'all again right here. Okay, for someone who loves Halloween, I actually didn't know the myth, the story behind the jack o' lantern. Yeah, so this is super fun. This yeah. is a really fun one to research. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific old folk story, um, and it comes to us from the 17th century Irish tale of Stingy Jack. Yes, Stingy Jack. So let's let's set the mood here. Let's set the scene. Yeah. Jack was a drunk and the ultimate manipulator. And when Satan, yes, that's Satan, uh-huh. got wind of this fella, he was a bit jealous. He wanted to prove he was superior in evilness and debauchery to this Jack. So one night when Jack was drunkenly stumbling around, as he was wont to do, he ran into Satan looking to collect his soul. <laughs> Jack convinced Satan to allow him one last drink. But when the bill comes due, wouldn't you know it, but Jack doesn't have any money. 
That's where the stingy bit comes in, I'm guessing. So he convinced the seemingly gullible Satan to turn into a silver coin to pay for said drink. But instead, Jack pocketed Satan in his now coin form next to his handy crucifix in his pocket so Satan couldn't transform back. Jack would only set him free after he convinced Satan to leave him and his soul alone for one or ten, depending which story you look at, years. How he had this negotiation with a coin, that's beyond me. Anyway, when Satan came at the end of their agreed-upon term, Jack tricked Satan... Again. (laughs) Again, by getting him to climb a tree for a piece of fruit that Jack wanted as his last meal, and then Jack quickly placed a bunch of crucifixes to keep Satan up, up stuck in the tree. (laughs) Oh, like a kitten. I know. Kind of adorable. And I really want more details on that conversation. How did he convince him to climb a tree for this piece of fruit? Anyway, this time Jack bargained with Satan to never take his soul to Hades. And what I imagine as a hands-thrown-up type move, Satan agreed. Alas, when Jack finally drank himself to death years later, he was refused entrance into heaven for his deviousness. And as per the deal he struck with Satan, he couldn't go to Hades either. Satan, still mad about how foolish all the trickery had made him look, sentenced Jack to wander a never-ending night with only a lit coal as his light. Jack placed the coal in a hollowed-out turnip and went about his miserable way for all eternity. The Irish gave him the name Jack of the Lantern, later shortened to Jack-o'-lantern, and the tradition of carving root vegetables and later the pumpkin with scary faces was meant to frighten Stingy Jack and other spirits like him away. Ooh, I love it. (laughs) Um, And thanks to super producer Tristan McNeil, who is the one who edited that pumpkin vignette, as super producer Andrew called it. Yes. Back in the day. Uh, Yeah, so that's the popular legend behind the jack-o'-lantern and where that practice came from. And then people in Ireland and Scotland, after they immigrated to the U.S., they took this practice with them. And um, in the U.S., we had pumpkins. Mm -hmm. And they were just kind of, they look like a head. They do. I I imagine it's easier to do. Yeah, gosh, I feel like I would would mangle myself trying to carve a turnip. I mean, I'm worried when I'm cutting them up in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm scared of jack-o'-lanterns, actually. I just think it's it's difficult for me to believe I've never been seriously injured carving a, a pumpkin. But <laughs> I Well, I'm glad that you haven't. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I did want to say the, these little jack-o'-lanterns were usually kind of kept on windows or doors mm-hmm. to keep the spirits away. Mm-hmm. On the traditional Gaelic version of Halloween, Samhain, people would use the jack-o'-lanterns to light their way. Sometimes there would be parades or, you know, costume parades mm-hmm. and you'd have your little... Your little lantern. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, while the story of Stingy Jack is widely held to be the origin of the jack-o'-lantern, there is evidence of an earlier version called the Hot Birdies Lantern. <laughs> Uh, these were also turnips carved out with faces and a candle huh. inside, but I didn't really find much more... Than just that fact that they exist <laughs> or they maybe existed. So, you know, grain of salt, mysteries of history. Mm-hmm. Another turnip legend. Um, okay, 
So after the Brothers Grimm began publishing their collections of folk tales, a fellow in Russia was inspired to do the same for his local tales, uh, one Alexander Afanasyev. Um, and he would publish these fairy tales and folk tales from 1855 through 1864 and would himself inspire a few other Russian writers and historians to do the same. But one of those tales is the gigantic turnip, um, sometimes translated as the enormous turnip. And it's, it's, a, it's a real simple, like, fable of a farmer who grows a turnip so big that he eventually has to enlist the help of everyone on the farm down to the smallest mouse to help him pull it up. And it's, you know, a story of... of of coming together. Coming together and, and that even even the smallest and weakest among us have a role. Yeah. Yeah. I have read that, I, be, I believe. I seem to have a... Something's rattling around back there. <laughs> and then, in 1876, two brothers returned home from the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, home being Westport, Massachusetts, bringing with them some rutabaga seeds back from the event. Now... <laughs> Again, some people say it was turnip seeds. Some people say rutabaga. I got very confused. I think it was rutabaga. Anyway, these brothers, Aiden and Elihu Maycumber, planted the seeds next to their crop of cabbages, or in some things, different things. I don't know. <laughs> and the resulting cross-pollination of whatever led to what is now known as the Maycumber turnip. This turnip is often described as creamier and sweeter than other turnips. Again, it might not actually be a turnip. <laughs> Uh, it became popular in the area because its growing season continued after the potatoes' growing season came to an end. Ah. And it's pretty contained to that area. The nonprofit Seed Savers Exchange, all about preserving heirlooms, managed to find some seeds dating back to the 1940s in a blacksmith out of Dartmouth. The ah. Maycumber turnip also boasts one of the only vegetable-based historic markers in the U.S. Huh. It reads in part... There had never been a better turnip. The Maycumber turnip is Westport's own, a symbol of pride and a treasure of mildness and sweetness that comes from our soil. A oh, treasure of mildness. A treasure. Gosh. Never a better turnip, Lauren. Never. I'm not going to argue. Mm -mm. I cannot. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, in the early 1900s, farmers in the United States began turning away from turnips um, as, as livestock feed because of the hard labor required to harvest them. Um, research at the time showed that corn was three times more efficient to harvest for the same nutritional output for livestock. Um, although I have vague suspicions that this might have something to do with uh, the larger corn lobby in the United States. So You got some... Some theories. I do. Some suspicions. Oh, we're going to have to have oh, many episodes about corn-related stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> In the iconic scene from Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel Gone with the Wind later immortalized in the 1939 film, when Scarlett O'Hara cries to the sky, As God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again. Spot on. It Spot was. On. That was real good. Um, <laughs> that cry was prompted by a turnip, implying <laughs> that one would only resort to eating a turnip when starving. <gasps> yeah. During World War One, a failed potato harvest coupled with a shortage of bread culminated in a winter in which German citizens had to survive largely off of turnips. And this period from 1916 to 1917 is now often referred to as the turnip winter. Huh. 
and a cookbook was even published during this time, chock full of recipes on how to use turnips in the place of potatoes. Something similar happened to the British during World War II when shortages forced citizens to rely more and more on turnips. The master chef at London Savoy Hotel, Francois Latry, tried to dress up the turnip with a dish he called Woolton Pie after the head of the Ministry of Food, Lord Woolton. From my understanding of the recipe, it was basically a meat pie, but with root vegetables, usually potatoes, but replaced with turnips during shortages or complemented with them. Um, it's called in the recipe, in the original recipe, the word Swedes is used, which confusingly is more appropriately applied to what we call in America rutabagas. But turnips. It was turnips. It was turnips. Yes. Lottery tried to make the dish appear palatable, posing in a photograph, happily eating it, but no one really bought it. According to National Geographic, a consumer of the pie wrote of it, a horrible dish has appeared on the dining room table. <laughs> it is composed entirely of root vegetables in which one feels turnip has far too honored a place. <laughs> As beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, once the war was over and the rationing, a thing of the past, the recipe pretty much disappeared. Although you can find recipes online for Wilton pie, uh, most of them do not involve turnips. Huh. And according to some research I was doing around this, the only survivor of this kind of period of, like, recipe survivor is carrot cake. Wow. Because we couldn't, the biggest mystery of history, as that the author of that cake book wrote. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> carrot cake. Oh, um, in the late 70s and early 80s, turnips as livestock feed came back into fashion as researchers developed varieties that grow with partially exposed roots, um, letting animals readily graze both the greens and the roots. Um, there, I just found that it, 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 this one paper that was super into, <laughs> yes. and I was really fascinated by it. But yeah, apparently uh, turnips are a really good energy source for young cattle, sheep, goats, and other uh, uh, ruminants. Hmm. So there you go. The turnip played a minor role in the 1990 movie Crazy People. I haven't seen it. But it follows an advertising executive who comes up with honest slogans for products while in the midst of a nervous breakdown, uh, including this one. Turnips, they're really not that bad. <laughs> Sounds like the kind of marketing slogan that I would give. I something. would enjoy that. Right? I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I know what you're all about. <laughs> um, and uh, relatively recent turnip research news. Um, <laughs> as of 2013, researchers found that some of the inedible oils that you can get from some varieties of turnip seeds can make really decent biodiesel fuel when blended with other diesels. Like uh, like on par with soybean biodiesel, which is like generally considered one of the highest quality biodiesels. So yay for that. Yay for using the whole plant. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Turnip's got a lot going on. It does. I'm telling you, this whole episode. <sighs> I, I love it when it's an unexpectedly excellent topic. Yeah. Like you think it's going to be the story is going to be this one thing. Yeah. Or just really dry or something. But then... But then you're given this wealth. So much. This turnip wealth. I know. And I know there's probably more out there. And hopefully, listeners, if we miss something. Oh, gosh. Right turnips. in. <laughs> Always right in about turnips. <laughs> we need to know. We need to know. I'm hoping that there is a pet with a turnip as a food name. Because it's a great name. It is. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm hoping. Fingers yes. crossed. Well, I don't think our listeners will let us down. They're pretty <laughs> rad. Uh, speaking of, we do have some listener mail. We do, but first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top 
of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Mail. That was the beat job. Uh, Turn up for what? Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. Maybe I could I could compete in that contest. <laughs> I am not giving up hopes on it. I, I believe in you, Annie. Thank you. <laughs> I need your support. Hannah wrote, See, I don't know what it is about my eyes, but I have a huge <laughs> issue with cutting onions. Oh. As soon as I so much as slice into the thing, my eyes start seriously tearing up and burning. I love cooking with onions, so obviously this is a big issue. Mm. It doesn't matter what kind of onion it is. Even the most innocuous of sweet Vidalia <laughs> or Walla Walla onions turn on the waterworks. One day, shortly after moving out of my parents' house and into my new apartment, I decided enough was enough. <laughs> I was an adult now, gosh darn it, and I had the right to eat delicious onion-filled dishes without sobbing like I had just experienced all the pain and misery of reading The Deathly Hallows for the first time. <laughs> Determined, <laughs> I went on to WikiHow and I looked up all the tips and tricks for avoiding tears while cutting onions. I swiftly decided that the smartest thing to do would be to take all of these tricks and do them all at the same time for maximum effectiveness. Yeah. Predictably, this proved to be a monumentally stupid decision. Oh. First, I put my onion in the freezer an hour or so out of time. Why? I don't know. The internet told me to. Then, I stuck a massive wad of strongly flavored gum in my mouth, at least four or five pieces. Why? Heck if I know, but I'm sure there's some science behind it. Then I lit several small tea candles all around my cutting board. Why? I don't know. I guess cutting onions and summoning demons is basically the same thing if you think about it. My workstation sacrificed to the onion cutting gods thus arranged. I got out my best and only kitchen knife, an extremely cheap and dull model from Walmart or the dollar store. I can't remember which. And my frozen solid onion and went to work. Of course, cutting through a solid mass of frozen hard root vegetable proved very difficult. But with enough brute force, I got that sad, dull knife about halfway through the onion. Instantly, that familiar burning <laughs> sensation came to my eyes. Frustrated but still determined, I could make this work. I tried to pry my knife from the onion only to find it was firmly stuck. I began whacking the onion on the cutting board with my knife, creating a primitive onion club that I'm sure could have made a good weapon. <laughs> I eventually got the onion in half, and I began trying to make slices. Meanwhile, my eyes really began to burn to the point that I couldn't keep them open. So there I was, standing at my cutting board, slamming down my dull knife into the frozen <laughs> solid onion with my eyes closed, tears streaming down my face, and several small open flames <laughs> around me filled with molten wax. Honestly, I don't know how I didn't burn down my apartment or cut off a finger that day. Thankfully, I've since discovered that a simple pair of swimming goggles does the trick. <laughs> I might look like an idiot cutting onions with goggles on, but at least it comes with much lower risk of accidental amputation or candle-based veggie demon summoning. 
<laughs> also, I love your email, Hannah. It's very nerdy, and I knew we'd be friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I it's love a disaster. It. A freezing uh, a, an onion salad. I've never heard that one. Yeah. I mean, I guess if it's frozen, I mean, by, by virtue of not being able to cut it, it's not going to bother That's your eyes. That's true. It's just really a big deterrent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't cut open this onion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, okay. Uh, Heather wrote, I've been enjoying your podcast for a long time and just finished your recent episode about fictional foods from Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I appreciate it. Oh, yay. While listening, I was reminded of a geeky cocktail book I picked up on a holiday in Portland last year, The Cocktail Guide to the Galaxy by Andy Heidel. There are a ton of different cocktails in it from a geek bar in the U.S. called The Way Station, with sci-fi-inspired names from new and classic movies and shows. There's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster, a bunch of different sonic screwdrivers, depending on which doctor you prefer, a Buckaroo Banzai-inspired oscillator overthruster, and Hasty, actually. The book has a bunch of drinks themed around Star Wars, including a recipe for the blue milk cocktail you mentioned in the episode, which got me thinking about it. This book's recipe for it is one part blue curacao and one part Bailey's served over ice, and I recommend it. It's pretty tasty. I've been working my way through the book slowly, and I have to admit that even though I'm not a Trekkie like my husband, my favorite drink lately is from the Star Trek category. He's dead, Jin. <laughs> not only is the name pretty much the ultimate, but it's really tasty, too. <laughs> That's great. That's uh, great. <laughs> I, I want to look at this book. Yes. Oh, he's dead, Jin. <laughs> so good. Oh. Sometimes I just get frustrated with how how much I love puns. Oh, don't play. Oh, don't be don't be frustrated. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. So many people share that love with you. It's true. It brings us all together. And and unless you're some people unless who don't like don't that like kind like of it. stuff, then that's okay. I understand. <laughs> you know, different strokes, different folks. But it seems these listeners are on our page. Yes, and we really appreciate both of them writing to us. Yes. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saberpod.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at SaverPod. We do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.